Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Cowley. And this is our roundup of blog articles for April 2023. Simon, we're a little bit out of date. It's already June when we're recording. The sun is shining. We're in the middle of a heat wave. Um, but there's been lots going on, hasn't there? Probably worth mentioning. We should have been on our way to Cumbria right now. Yeah, we should. It's supposed to be the weekend of uh, St. Emelins Wild, a huge project, put <laughs> lots of time and effort and money into it. But unfortunately, um, we had to cancel at uh, late notice. Really, really disappointing, really sad about it because it would have been great and to get everybody up into the lakes and have a great time, learn loads of things, get outside, be active and you know rebuild that sort of enthusiasm for emergency medicine. And I know we've both spent a lot of time thinking about why it was that we had to cancel. The bottom line was we didn't have enough people sign up. And so financially, it just wasn't viable anymore. And perhaps this is a change. I mean, there's lots of reasons why that could have happened. Are there things you think are different these days for medical conferences and, and medicine and the way we deliver information in general? I think it's you're right. It's, it's multifactorial. There's a lot going on in terms of finance, although we did try and keep the, the cost down. But also, you know, maybe people's enthusiasm for meeting up has, has waned. I don't know. The days of sort of smack and coda when people were sort of traveling the world to go and, and meet up with people. I think may have gone. We're seeing that in a number of other conferences and another number of other organizations have had to cancel events this year. So maybe there's been a shift in the world and, and we were just at the wrong, wrong place at the wrong time. And it's been fascinating to see as well, a bit of a move away from the free FOMED concept. I noticed this week that Rob McSqueen's excellent critical care reviews has now gone to a pay model. Obviously, Scott Weingart with MCRIT, he's gone to a paid model. Do we think this is the end of FOMED or is it just a changing times? It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, both Rob and uh, Scott's uh, material is absolutely fantastic. And I do subscribe to MCRIT. And if you really want to see a, listen to a fantastic podcast, you know, Scott is the best. He's just amazing. But yeah, they've gone to sort of a more professional model. I think there'll always be a role for FOMED. I think there's always going to be an appetite for people to share what they know and share their enthusiasm and passion for the for the specialty and what we do. Um, but yeah, things are changing. Who knows? Who knows what the future holds? But with all of these things, I know you and I have come out of the St. Emlyn's Wild disappointment with positivity, I think, as tends to be our aim. And new things ahead for St. Emelins as well, giving us a lot to think about and a lot to think about how we go forward in the future. But the bottom line is we're going to keep going and we're going to keep trying to deliver the same high quality education stuff that we have for education and critical care. Whether you're a doctor, nurse, medical student, paramedic, allied health professional, whatever you may be, we're going to keep going. Uh, How we do that may develop, but uh, let's crack on, shall we, and talk about some stuff from our blogs from April. And first, Simon, let's take some time to talk a bit about training for HALO procedures. This is about a talk you gave in Florence, so people were still meeting up and and there are still conferences to go to, but this was in Florence. And you were talking about HALO procedures. Tell us a bit about what those are and why it is that you deserved a talk from you at a conference. Well, HALO procedures, HALO stands for, well, it stands for a couple of things, high altitude, low opening, for if you're a parachutist. But in this context, it's high acuity, low occurrence type procedures. So they're the sort of time critical procedures that we do in emergency medicine, pre-hospital care, where there's not a lot of time to think about it. They are potentially life-saving procedures, but they don't happen very often. So uh, the ones we've listed on here are things like surgical airway, front of neck access, thoracotomy, chest drain insertion is, is increasingly less common these days. Uh, thoracotomy, obviously, resuscitative hysterotomy, advanced vascular access, so things like intraosseous central access, particularly in the critically unwell patient, because obviously the, the nature of the patient changes these things as well. Uh, lateral canthotomy, um, if you're into that. And then not not in my sort of practice, but in other areas, you might be thinking about things like resuscitative, ECMO, Reboa, escarotomies, those kind of things. They're not day-to-day procedures, but 
if you've got to do them, you've got to do them well. You've got to often do them under quite a significant amount of time pressure, often a lot of significant amount of human factors type issues going on at the same time. And they're difficult. They're not, well, actually, you know, many of them are actually relatively easy to do from a psychomotor perspective, but the whole thing makes it quite a big issue if you ever get involved in those. And I, I know you've done some of these as well, Ian, and they're high pressure events, aren't they? They're memorable. I think the really tricky thing for us is that these are things that could happen tomorrow, or they may never happen. Of that list, there are some that I have never done and never seen in real life. So I have never been part of a resuscitative hysterotomy, and I've never been part of a lateral canthotomy. And I've been an emergency medicine consultant for 15 years. But that doesn't mean I won't have to do that tomorrow. I know there's been one resuscitative hysterotomy in my department, I think in the last five years or so, maybe two, and lateral canthotomies, we just had a runoff. We had two or three in the last six months for some reason, uh, but I wasn't there. But I'll be looked to as the guy who needs to be able to do it. Uh, and trying to train for that is quite tricky, I think. I, I do a lot of that sort of using my practice, my mental modeling practice when I'm driving in the car just to remind me. But unless you've got a reason to to do this, often it may slip through and then you're confronted by this on a day where you're just not expecting it. So how do we practice for these? It's a really interesting question. And I think if you look at what people have done in the past or what they've described, it's a little bit piecemeal. And, and by, by that, I mean that when I was thinking about putting this together, my initial thoughts were, okay, well, how do you get the psychomotor skills, the physical bits and bobs that you can do with your hands, with the tools, with the, you know, the shears, with the scalpel, et cetera, about how you actually physically do these procedures. And the more I read about it and the more I thought about it, I was much more along the lines that you just described, really, and, and thinking that it's not actually just about putting knife to skin. It's about all the other things that are happening around that. We talk about a triumvirate of preparing for these things. So yes, you do need to learn the psychomotor skills and we can talk in some detail about how you do that or the or methods whereby you can. But you also need to have the involvement of the team. So none of these procedures are going to be done with just you in the room. So how is it going to affect the other people there? You choose to talk about resuscitative hysterotomy. If you've been involved in one of those, the impact or even a thoracotomy, the impact on the team around you is huge and the support you need from them is really important. So you've got the psychomotor skills, you need the team, but also that mental modeling about yourself. How do you get yourself in the right mental position? How do you do those mental rehearsals? How do you do the simulation in your head in preparation? That's all really important. Three aspects, learn the psychomotor skills, get yourself in the right mental space to do these things and understand your thinking, your concerns, and then train your team to be around you and to support you and the patient to make it happen on the day. So that, that was kind of the theoretical approach about how we put these things together. So let's start talking a little bit about psychomotor skills for these procedures. What do you think the best way to do these things are and, and how do they fit into a curriculum and a, a set of learning that we all have to do where we've got stuff that we see every day. So I see patients with chronic pain every day. I see patients with mental illness every day. I see people with headache every day, and I might never see one of these patients at all. So how can I justify having to do the training for these procedures when there's a chance I'll never use it? On the day when you need it, you absolutely need it. And to some extent, that's why we're in the job that we do, because there needs to be people out there in the world who can do these procedures. Fundamentally, that is part of the purpose of what we do to deal with extreme emergencies. That's part of the job of an emergency physician, pre-hospital physician. You're right. I mean, we can't train on the job, I think is, is what you're saying, isn't it? You can't learn to do... A, you know, Fiona, my wife is an ophthalmic surgeon, so she can learn how to do cataracts by seeing lots and lots and lots of people have cataracts done and then get better and better and better at it. We can't do that for thoracostomy. You can't learn on the job, although that was traditionally the model. So I think there's a hierarchy of how we build up to these things. So at the bottom, then obviously you can read, you can watch, you can talk, you can go and look at presentations, you can go to conferences and stuff like that and get that sort of baseline knowledge, which I think is really important. There's some good papers out there to describe 
all of these procedures really. Um, and then you can move on to do things like what we call part trainers. So that might be a model um, of just a you know a thorax or a torso or something, whatever, to try and practice some of these procedures. And then you can go on to animal models. And certainly in the Northwest, um, we have a really good system set up by colleagues uh, locally where they use pig cadavers to teach the principles of things like thoracotomy, lateral canthotomy, amputation. And then we have some hybrid plastic pig models to teach resuscitative hysterotomy. That's really good because that's quite accessible. It's relatively cheap and you can do it lots of time. So, you know, it's not a once in a lifetime training program. You can do that sort of every three years if you're you're motivated to do so. And then above that, you've got the human cadaver courses, which are increasingly common in the UK. And in terms of fidelity and in terms of understanding and having the time to to sort of think about the anatomy and think about what you're going to do when you get in there. It's not about just about making the incision are really important. And then top of that of course is go back and teach it that old principle that if you really want to understand something go and teach it so yeah we've got the hierarchy in the northwest it's pretty good moving up from junior levels learning about things and um, registrars get the animal models and then the senior registrars and consultants go on and do the cadaver courses um, and that that's a kind of our model how does that fit with them um, where you are very similar and i think these courses are very popular people really want to do them i think it's partly because people are concerned and and worried that they might be confronted by this because of course our old model of see one do one teach one doesn't apply here does it it's do one i don't mean as in go do one i mean do one to be ready for that people feel that pressure i think they're not easy courses to organize and i do myself need you know you need to think about the getting the so-called medical meat that is not cheap and then when you're onto cadaver courses i feel a real need to respect the person who's donated their body and we've got to be doing the right stuff with them so it can't just be let's have a go at this because one day we might do it. It's got to be a proper reason for getting that done. And then, of course, once you've done the course, it could be a few years before you're back anywhere near doing this procedure. After doing the courses and doing the other things, what what do you do next to keep up to date? I mean, how often should you do it? Is this a bit like we talk about with anaesthesia and pre-hospital care? Oh, you need to go into theatre every year and do some intubations to get observed and know that everyone knows. Do you keep going? Is it a yearly thing? I don't think um, anybody really knows. I don't think the data's out there on that. Somebody might correct me on that. I think moving up that hierarchy is very good. I think you don't necessarily have to go back and do the the top level courses um, on a huge regular basis. But if, if you're in a position where you like to be doing these regularly, maybe three to five years would be would be wise. But um, I find I get a lot out of going back and teaching on them and also teaching on the animal model courses. And that gives me lots of time to think about these things again, to do a lot more mental simulation, to have the conversations with people. I find that a really useful thing to do. Doing those kind of courses with the right faculty is important in that it's really fantastic if you can get some surgeons along when you do these courses so that you do a thoracotomy with a cardiothoracic surgeon alongside you. You can have a conversation about the anatomy. You can talk about how things might be different. You can have a real understanding and they've got huge credibility in that area. And again, you know, when you're doing the resuscitative hysterotomy course, if you, if you've got an obstetrician in the room who you can, you know, bounce questions off and sort of go through problems and potential pitfalls, I find that really, really helpful. But for me, I think, Yes. If you're involved in one of those services where these, these services are like, these things are like to happen, which is probably any emergency department, let's face it. Probably I would be looking at doing this probably every three to five years in some way, shape or form. Be that an animal model or a cadaver course or even just part trainers. And of course, the thing about that is if you're training with your local service, then the time at which this happens, there's every chance that person may come and join you halfway through or might be the person who comes to see you. And I think showing that we're interested in learning these things. And getting our colleagues involved, that's all part of how we work, isn't it? It's about that cross-disciplinary 
team working because that is part of the problem isn't it or challenge that you can be halfway through doing one of these and then in strides a cardiothoracic surgeon sort of tuts a little bit at your technique and takes over and pushes you out of the way thinking you don't know what you're doing but if they've seen that you've been committed to training to it that must help as well it does and one of the things we've done in manchester is set up the manchester advanced trauma training charity and which runs the cadaver courses in in manchester and we have a very multi-professional multidisciplinary faculty on that it's been great for the sort of circumstance you talk about Ian when um, you're in the on having a bad day and they may um, be there to help you that's fantastic but actually do you know what just training together and talking about these really difficult cases together in a good training program it's made differences across the board it's much easier to refer patients it's much easier to have a chat about difficult concerns it's much easier to sort of approach people and it's that old adage that if you train together working together then becomes so much easier across everything that we do I wish we did it more often to be honest now the next part you did a two-part blog for this and the next part was in May but I'm going to cheat and say let's do that as part of April because let's continue just to think a little bit about the second part of what we talked about so we've got the psychomotor stuff and then it's about preparing the person and how you're ready for this and that's a huge part of this isn't it sometimes it's about just being is brave enough the right word to do the procedure to just not stand and watch or to be able to say to speak up how do we prepare for for just being ready to do it once we've learned the skill you know, I can learn to juggle if I want. It doesn't mean I'm brave enough to juggle on stage. So how do we get brave enough to do it and get prepared as individuals? I thought about this in three ways, really. One is about sort of decision making. And the second thing is about what do you do when actually you're in the moment and you're terrified, which is an entirely plausible and reasonable response. And the third one is how do you sort of keep your preparation going over a period of time? So if we think about those differently, the first bit is the decision making, which I found there's a, there's a computer program. Have you ever used it called IFTT? If this, then that. So it does some really cool things. So it says like, you know, if, if Ian bids or publishes a paper, put it into my Evernotes folder. You can do all of these. If this happens, then that. And I think for virtually all of the halo procedures you can do that so you can today absolutely today when you're listening to this podcast you can make a decision about what are the circumstances when i would do that procedure if i see a patient who's got a recent cardiac arrest recent not very well defined for for purpose they've got recently gone into cardiac arrest and they've got the pregnant as defined by a fundus at or about the umbilicus so probably of a decent age i'm going to do perimortem c-section that's what's going to happen unless there's a really good reason why not if recent cardiac arrest, female, fundus at the umbilicus, I'm going to do a perimortem C-section. So I've made the decision today. I don't need to, in six months' time, be deciding whether or not this is the right thing to do because I've already done it. I just need to do that little sense check that, yep, okay, fine, move on. And you can do that for all of them. This is a can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario. That's the if. I'm going to perform front of neck access. I've already thought about it. It's already done. You know, and you can do that for lateral canthotomy, you can do it for all of the other things as well. So that's the decision making process. And the idea is that we take most of the debate out of the moment and do it before it ever happens. The second thing is about, you know, in the moment, what do you do when actually you're doing a procedure or you're about to do a procedure and basically you're bricking it? to be honest. And that's not unreasonable either. I've taken the, the Beat the Stress Fool method, um, which was championed by Mike Laurier and colleagues over in Canada and also people like Scott Waringart, which is to have a four-way idea of how you get yourself to actually perform the task, to actually take the step, to put knife to skin, to go on for it. And the BTSF is, in brief, read the blog, it's really good because I copied it from them. Uh, B is for breathing, so techniques for breathing. So we talk about square breathing, four seconds in, hold for four seconds, four seconds out, hold for four seconds you usually have to do that for two or three cycles if you're really getting emotionally um, stressed. It's very, very good technique. 
T for self-talk. So tell yourself that this is in your head. We can do it out loud, I suppose. This is something I have prepared for. This is something I am competent to do. This is something that I have practiced. This is something that I am going to do. So that self-talk type process is really important to get you to get over the threshold to perform the task. S is for C. So that's about mental rehearsal. So actually, even in the moment, just before you do it, just talk yourself through in your head and then visualize how you're going to do that. Remember how you did it in training. Remember the sequence of events, how where your hands are going to go, what you're going to hold. All of those kind of things can be done really quickly. I guess an alternative would be to watch a YouTube video, not really what you want to be doing in a halo procedure moment. And then F is about focus. Some people use a keyword. They have a particular phrase or something like that. That is their go phrase to trigger themselves to actually go forward and do the procedure. I don't do that, but it, some people really advocate it. So that's beat the scripts full. And then finally, exactly what you talked about before, the greatest simulator known to man, the most expensive, the best, the most graphic, the most high fidelity one is in your brain. Today, tomorrow, anytime next week, the end of the month, whatever. You can close your eyes, you can imagine a circumstance, you can imagine the patient, and you can talk yourself through and imagine how it would be to do a halo procedure, all of them. That mental simulator, the, your own brain simulator, as championed by Cliff Reed, is so powerful. And I think we can do that on a regular basis. But it's really important. If, if, you, if you know how to do the skill, but you're not prepared in yourself, and you don't know about your decision making, and you don't know how to handle stress in the moment, and you don't know how to visualize, it's not going to go well, guys. So just as important as learning the psychomotor skill is self-preparation. And of course, don't just be put off by thinking, well, this is for lateral canthotomies. I've never seen one. I'm never going to see one. I suppose a lot of this just applies to everything. It doesn't have to be these high impact procedures. This can be, I'm seeing a patient with a low GCS, uh, because then you've still got that if this, then that kind of idea with those, haven't you? And visualizing at that and at different levels, different things are going to cause us stress. So if you're just starting as a doctor and we'll have FY1s just joining us on the wards in a few weeks time and you're confronted by a situation on the wards in, in bed four of bay D, then you need to be ready, don't you? And you need to be able to concentrate and, and think about what it is you're doing so that you can get those procedures in the front of your head. I see it in examining for medical students, the time where they stand there just full of stress and worry. But there is that pause moment where you can use all of these techniques. So it's not just about that pregnant woman who who has that cardiac arrest. This can be applied to all sorts of bits of medicine, particularly emergency medicine, I would suggest. And I think you're right, although it's particularly relevant to those conditions where we have that time critical information like decision making make, making. So with all of these procedures, generally speaking, you could say, well, actually, it would be really nice. I've had just that little bit more information before I put knife to skin. So it would be really nice to have the CT scan that showed me there's a pericardial tamponade or there's an echo done before I put knife to skin. But actually, we can't do that. And so for the halo procedures, just got to be very mindful that we are going to be making a decision without all the facts that we might want to have, which is why I have real clarity of thought about it. And a little reminder to those of us who often look at these things in retrospect when we're asked to investigate how things have happened during a, a case. It's very hard to put yourself in the shoes of the individual unless you try really hard. So when we get these things, they can look really bland on a piece of paper. Oh, Simon Carley was in recess and this happened and this happened and this happened. And I can look at it two weeks down the line and go, yeah, but it was obvious looking at this, that this is what should have happened. That's very easy to do two weeks down the line. And you can then drag yourself into this situation whereby you then become critical of the person who did the procedure. Now that can even be down. Sometimes you see it in the morning, don't you? After the night shift where the night, the morning consultant comes on 
and starts asking questions of the night team who've made the best decision they can at three o'clock in the morning. There's no benefit to be gained to criticising after you've had a full night's sleep those individuals who've done the best they could in the time that they were doing it. You weren't there and it's very hard to picture that. You need to speak to the individuals and work out how they were thinking and support them through that because this is really stressful. Absolutely. And you allude to a really important principle of when we're looking at decision making in general, not just when things go wrong. But I'm always much more interested in why somebody made a decision just as much as I'm interested in what the decision was. I see that you have made the decision. Explain to me why you did that or help me understand what was going through your head at the time. And that's a really much better model of deciding whether somebody's got good judgment than just looking at what the outcome is because the outcome could have been lucky. They could have made the right decision on the wrong information. And similarly, you can make what turns out to be a bad outcome on actually what was was actually a pretty reasonable decision. So yeah, always look at the process, not just at the outcome. We spent a lot of time on that, Simon, but I think it's really important. And the two blog posts that you've written are worth a read and they will help refresh what you've we've both talked about. And I would encourage people to go and have a look at those. And it is about having your own determination to to get in the right place for doing these things. Because let's be honest, this could happen on your next shift. And that's why it matters. And that's what makes emergency medicine quite as exciting as it can be. You never know what's coming through the door. And that's why we need to be prepared. And so let's move on, Simon, and think a little bit about blood transfusion, because uh, Rich Carden, who's uh, just, I think, completed his PhD now, hasn't he, uh, in trauma, has done a lot of work about transfusion in trauma and trauma in general, huge amounts of stuff that helps inform what we're doing in the recess room. And we need people like Rich to do all that sort of stuff. And I'm glad that the amount of people doing research in emergency medicine is increasing because it helps inform us what we're doing. But he's done a bit of a history about where we're up to with blood transfusion. Because I think things have changed really over the last few years, haven't they? They have. I think there's, the data has come out to support a lot of the things that we thought might be a good plan, but now we've got better data. Rich's post goes through the sort of the history of where we started with blood transfusion, where we are to the current day, but also opens quite a few questions. There's, there's still a quite a lot of, bit of research to, to be done. It's worth noting that the SWIFT trial, which is a trial of whole blood versus components, so FFP and packed red cells um, has just kicked off, hasn't it? So in the last few weeks, months, and I think it's going across nine air ambulance services in the UK. So that'll be interesting to have a look at. So whole blood, you know, potentially got benefits. I think really interesting stuff. And blood transfusion, I think for us, again, has become one of those things that we used to be really reluctant to do. I remember way back when to give blood to a patient urgently was something you never really did. And now we seem to be doing it more frequently. But I think that's a good thing. And now the question is, is how do we pick the patients we're doing it on? And how do we then use the information we can use with uh, viscoelastic assays and that sort of stuff to target our blood transfusion to make sure it's not just let's keep giving blood and hope it all works? It's a, it's a really interesting area because you know, the, the evidence keeps coming out. So even I'm just looking now, even since Rich did his post, of course, Cryostat 2 and um, results have been out, but I don't think they're in the public domain yet. So I'm not going to talk about that. But, you know, there'll be more interest coming out of that. There's other trials that are ongoing at the moment. And actually, if you look at uh, Rich's summary about what the state of play is at the moment, it's relatively static in that, you know, in pre-hospital settings, the idea is you're still going to use com- uh, blood components in a one-to-one ratio. But if you don't have them, it's acceptable to use crystalloids on the basis of the refill trial, which of course showed no difference between blood versus crystalloid in that group of patients. Use the same sort of principles in children. And again, in hospital, again, using one-to-one 
ratios of components and doing the same in adults and children. I think we're sort of fairly confident about what we should be doing now, but we don't know about whole blood. We don't know about the results of cryostat 2. I believe there's some more really interesting work coming out of London in the next year as well, uh, which might change what we do. It's, it's, it's a moving field. And this is why we keep doing what we do, eh, Simon, is to try and help people keep up to date. Actually, on the blood transfusion one, one of the really interesting things that's come out in the last couple of years is some data that suggests that the patients who are most likely to benefit from early blood products may in fact be the head injuries. So we saw signals of that in iTactic. We've seen it in US trials. What was it? Pamper and combat trials. It's really interesting. So, you know, that assumption that this was all about patients who are actively bleeding and continuing to bleed, maybe it's not that group. I know how do we differentiate clinically between the patient who has bled versus the patient who is bleeding? You know, there's there's loads more to do in this area. And yet, if you work in, you know, a service where you see quite a lot of bleeding patients, you kind of get the feeling that we really need to try and do this better. And also we've got data from London, haven't we, that you really don't want to exsanguinate. Exsanguination as a cause of your traumatic cardiac arrest is an absolutely appalling thing to happen. And, you know, how do you stop that from happening? How do you intervene early? How do you do blood preservation? Loads, really exciting, really exciting stuff. And I suppose this comes full circle back to the discussion about halo procedures. If you have a patient who's bleeding in front of you, what do you do? And you need to practice for that. And you need to know how you're going to do that. You need to go, how you're going to gain access, which products are you going to give? How quickly are you going to give them? And it, that's another one of these procedures we need to be ready for where time does matter. And it may not feel like a, a high impact lateral canthotomy, resistive hysterotomy situation, but you're going to see a lot of people who are trying to bleed to death and being ready for that and having a technique is what you need. And, and that's perhaps what we're taking out from the whole of today's podcast. No, I would agree with that. And um, yeah, preparation, preparation, preparation. Absolutely. And the one other blog post we had in April, Simon, was the one from Dan Horn about the physiologically difficult airway. This was really there to accompany a talk in London that he did at the Royal College CPD conference, uh, which God, that feels like a long time ago now, doesn't it? Lots has happened since then. This is a post that's important, not least because it's got a lot of information there that you can follow to get extra detail from papers and evidence. And Dan, of course, being the academic that he is, has very much based this on the evidence that's available. In this month's post, it's basically a list of all the references there, but it does link back to a post that he did back in November 21 called Learning from UK ED Airway Management. It's really good and fascinating read. Essentially, what it does is it, it shows the evidence that in the critically ill, critically injured patient, the chances of a, a serious adverse event occurring at or around the time of intubation is actually quite high. I think the US study that had 45% had a major adverse event, either cardiovascular instability, hypoxia, arrest, difficulty with intubation or aspiration of gastric contents. It's quite high. I think, it, I think it's higher than my practice, I hope. But this physiologically difficult patient, and we see this a lot, don't we, in the sort of the really acute settings of the patient who requires airway intervention. Maybe they've got a big chest injury, but at the same time, they may also be bleeding. They may also be hypovolemic. These are physiologically extremely challenging cases. And Dan gives a really good view of how we approach that, probably summarized by don't give too many drugs and don't give drugs which we know cause hypotension. But definitely go back and have a look at that one from November 2021. It links from the post this month. Definitely worth a reread and also a whole bunch of references there. Should you ever want to have a proven evidence base for your practice? There we go, Simon. That, that is April. Feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? But uh, we've had a lot going on and haven't had a chance to share a couple of microphones. But we will be back with an update for May very soon. But for now, it's good to chat again. Please keep enjoying your emergency medicine. Enjoy the sunshine if you're in the UK. 
obviously not too much and probably re revise everything you need to know about heat-induced illness because we're bound to see some people come in over the next few days with that sort of thing. It doesn't happen often in the UK, I have to say. Oh, it's another halo, Simon. Here we are. Back again. Things, things that don't happen often, but we need to know all about. Heat-induced illness in the UK. But for now, keep enjoying your emergency medicine and take care, everyone. Have fun.